Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. They caught a shark, not the shark. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. We're tonight's entertainment. This is some serious gourmet. Showtime! I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I you. you gonna do something or just stand there and bleed? How's that for a slice of fried gold? Here's Johnny! Hey guys, welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Popcorn. John here, and I'm so excited today because I have a badass guest. We have Nicole Rubin, a therapist, and we're going to talk about therapy, being a therapist. We're going to talk about one of the best television shows I have seen in a very, very long time. That is Ted Lasso. I, uh, <laughs> the show came highly recommended saw a few episodes and I was hooked immediately. It was very charming, very witty, very funny. And yeah, so we're going to talk to Nicole today about that. And um, I'm so happy that you're here doing this with me. How do you feel? I'm so stoked. I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited to be here. You don't need to be nervous. Well, you know, as a therapist, it's my job to be vulnerable in every opportunity possible. So you're a therapist. Why do you feel that you have to be vulnerable? I think it's really wonderful modeling to show people that it's okay to kind of just put out there how you feel and sort of let the chips fall. And usually it ends pretty well. Okay. How long have you been a therapist? Oh, since I started practicing in 2013 uh, at a rehab center for drug and alcohol abuse and uh, went out on my own in private practice in 2016. Five right. years. And do you have like in, I know therapy is a broad, uh, there's a broad palette of therapy out there in different disciplines. Where would you say your discipline lays at in the spectrum of therapy and rehabilitating, rehabilitating people? Yeah, I'm a somatic psychotherapist, so um, I have special training in how uh, trauma and stress get physically stored in our body, which you can see in Ted Lasso. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Um, what do you like? What do you like most about being a somatic therapist? Like, what is it? First off, what what drew you to that to that lane of therapy or that corner of therapy? You know, several years ago, I had a long-term client that we had just a wonderful relationship, and um, she was really wanting to unpack some serious trauma that had happened to her, and at the time, um, I didn't have any specific trauma training. Most uh, graduate programs don't specifically train you in trauma, and I said to her, I, I, I don't know how to work with this. I don't know what to do, and she said, well, you better get some training because I'm not going to work with anybody else. And I was like, you know what? Fair. And so um, I just sort of started on a, a journey of seeing what was out there. And um, it just, it started to really make sense when I was exploring it. Just there are so many people that will tell you that therapy doesn't work for them. Oh, I tried that. And it just, I just talked. And when I left, I felt the same. Nothing ever changed. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love that when you get into the body and regulating the nervous system, it opens up this whole new world that people who were 
so convinced, oh, this is just how I am. I'm just broken. That's just what it is. I just need to accept that, right? Um, but it's just not true. Yeah. Do you feel that those people out there that that are uh, that feel hope, hopeless, that are convinced that they are lost, that they are a lost cause, do you feel that everyone feels that way and everyone in general can um, benefit and be saved and be healed with therapy, trauma therapy, uh, counseling? You know, I don't think that therapy is the only lane that works. You know, that's a really um, like Western approach. Uh, there are so many traditions, um, shamanic, you know, and indigenous traditions that are so incredibly valuable and quite frankly, leaps and bounds ahead of uh, Western medicine. I would say that uh, modern day psychology is really catching up to what uh, so many indigenous cultures have known for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, that said, I think that the pace of our society is so friggin' chaotic that if you don't stop to examine the why of your experience, um, it's so easy to just be on autopilot and live by values that are not defined by you, uh, principles that are ultimately arbitrary. And I think that when we live by other people's principles and purpose, we tend to become depressed and anxious. So, you know, I think you can do that work with a therapist, with a clergyman, with your best friend, with the ocean, if, if that's what speaks to you, um, as long as you're doing that work. So it sounds like there is always going to be a path for no matter who you are, but it's really up to you to find what that vehicle looks like. Right, right. So sometimes it is therapy and sometimes it's a long walk in the park with your best bud. Absolutely. So, wow, it just seems like there's so, you know, and we'll, you know, we're going back to Ted Lasso, this plays a big factor down the road in season mm -hmm. two. Um, it seems like there's just this big stigma that really is just wrapped in fear. Right. Uh, for many people who look at therapy like a, a, a con or a crock. Or right. I think a, that it really infamous Rick and Morty episode when he turns into a pickle. <laughs> and he, you know, he goes into the therapy therapist's office and he basically just right. shats on everything she does, her whole vocation. Right. And then Susan Sarandon just like rips him a new one and it's glorious. It's Susan Sarandon, right? I don't know that that plays the therapist. Yeah, I don't know if that's her or not. Oh shit, that'd be so fascinating if it was. I, I love Susan Sarandon. Yeah, I really thought it was her, and she just like dresses him down. I mean, a classic example of a narcissist. I mean, you know, coming up against a educated woman and just expecting to, you know, lay his mm, on the table. Yeah, his pickle. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then she just, without even changing her tone of voice in that particular scene, it's just like. Oh, you think so, huh? And puts him in his place. That's which is, I would say Ted Lasso is a lot like Rick, where he's very sure of himself, he's very confident, but they're, they are very split mm. on their on their approach to onto uh, dealing with people. Where you know, whereas Rick feels very entitled and very, you know, 
above everyone else because of his level of intelligence mm -hmm. intelligence and but also look at ted lasso who he how do i say this about ted lasso ted lasso is very competent to motivate people mm -hmm. he's very good at coaching he's very good at mentoring so they're both very competent men but they don't know where to where to uh put those things that they don't understand because it's stuff that you can't learn in the books per se and stuff that is scary and it's vulnerable and i feel like when you people when people have that exposed part of their shell it's like a weakness and they're vulnerable and it's it's scary right. and then that and that disrupts their image of themselves as being almost bulletproof invincible mm. um i don't know what do you, is that is that yeah. too far no far i mean off? I, it was a connection that I probably wouldn't have made on my own, but the truth is it's a really interesting connection. You know, I think both men use some level of ego uh, to control and hide their anxiety. You know, Rick ultimately has a fair amount of existential anxiety, and especially in these like later episodes, you really see him confronted with you know, the, the consequences of the decisions and you, you see so much deeper things coming out of him. I think we're still, we're just, we're just breaking the surface of that for Ted Lasso. Yeah. I'm so excited where season three is going to take his character and yeah. his character arc because, you know, all we get are these little nuggets throughout the series and these little nuggets that show that, he basically went to England to escape. Mm -hmm. And I was reading about that, that Jason Sudeikis, it mirrored that Ted's journey mirrored his journey because Jason Sudeikis was going through a real life breakup with his, at the time, girlfriend, Olivia Wilde. Oh, really? And so through Ted Lasso, we helped him grieve and process and stuff, you know, but, but burying himself in work. So making Ted Lasso and Ted Lasso, the character burying himself in, understanding soccer, understanding the sport, understanding this new culture. You know, everyone speaks the same language as he does, but no one's speaking his language. Right. You know what I mean? And I, I love, like, even Ted Lasso kind of has his own language because mm -hmm. he speaks in idioms. And it's it's so charming. And you just you can't help but root for the son of the gun. Yeah. So, but before we get too deep in the woods with uh, with Ted, I kind of want to get more, more context on your therapist, and despite everyone's occupations, everyone, you know, everyone has their different occupation and everyone also has a different approach to art and absorbing culture, absorbing, mm -hmm. absorbing pop culture. And in the context of film and television, you know, we're seeing stories about people, stories that are either meant to connect us or ground us or to allow us to kind of break away from our reality kind right. of escape and it's just so beautiful about about television and film and i wanted to ask you like do you feel you know if you wanted to to either sit down and escape after a long day or sit down and try to connect with something you know and if we're talking about film and television what would you most likely go to for that purpose to let's just say you went to escape for the day is it a film or is it like a tv series or Hmm. You know, years ago when I, when I started in private practice, I recognized pretty quickly that I had to be getting, um, just 
more intentional about what I was exposing myself to. Um, it's no coincidence that anxious people love true crime. And it, why is that? It, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, it freaking fascinates me, but ultimately our body has sensations and our brain, which is ultimately just a pattern making meat machine. It's not nearly as smart as we would like to give it credit for looks to the past and, and just draws conclusions. So, you know, I think what you have with true crime is people who have pretty high strung nervous systems, either, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or just, I don't know, our world is on fire at any given time, you sure. know, um, and it, it gives them a place to point all that sensation in their body. It makes meaning. Their brain gets to go, oh, that's why I feel that way, because I'm scared of this thing or, you know, because of this injustice in this particular case or whatever. So I think it, it feels really good to know where that's going. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, it's a really wonderful way to just keep feeling a lot, uh, which isn't wonderful for your nervous system. You end up storing a lot of uh, stress chemicals, making you more stressed. So I just had to become a lot more intentional about what I was exposing myself to. Um, that said, <laughs> after a long day of work, what do I watch? Probably some combination of a sitcom I've seen a kajillion times. Um, what up other neurodivergent people that hang out with old friends who aren't real. <laughs> and that might be like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Bob's Burgers or, you know, kind of one of those uh, easy, fun um, I'm sure I've seen every episode of Big Bang Theory 32 times. Don't judge me. Um, I never would. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, but I'm always also just a honest to goodness sucker for a good uh, rom-com. Always will be. You know, it's 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 funny. Like, you know, you have your rom-coms. Like, I, I love really awful, cheesy, <laughs> terrible horror movies. And I love really good horror movies. Mm. And I like old sitcoms like MASH, The Andy Griffith Show, Cheers, stuff I grew up on. Because mm. it's in The Simpsons, really, because it feels familiar and comfortable. And I like, you know, newer sitcoms too. So I think it's just mood based right. for sure. And the thing I like about a TV show is that they last longer. It's like, you know, it's like anything. It's a series of books, mm -hmm. a series of comic books. It's, you know, it's the friend you see every day at school because there's like always a new episode, right? right? Whereas a movie is pretty finite. In, in, in the grand scheme of things, so are television series. Um, look at you, Firefly. But, hey. <laughs> but, you know, in community for that matter, um, I don't know, like sometimes a movie's right amount a substance, right amount of of um, right amount of scratch for my itch. Whereas sometimes if you, you put on a television sh television show, you can kind of sit with it. Mm -hmm. And now in the days of streaming, just let that bitch fly. You know, you don't have to worry about commercials. You don't have to worry about really anything. Just hit, make sure you you hit the next episode button on your remote or whatever you have. And, I don't know. So it just, I always want to ask people that because some people feel like a television show can tell a better story because you have more time to to have the characters develop 
more time to have more plots and more learning and more um, you know just overall um, interesting stories happen right whereas like I said a movie is like ABC first act second act third act and you're done so I, I just, I just want to know that's like if there's a preference there for you or does it really depend on anything what would that be you know, it's, it's interesting when I think about that question, you know, had you asked me the same question 10 years ago, you know, where we were with TV was still in that weird, awful reality TV kind of soup. And, uh, I would have said movies all day, <laughs> but now, you know, we've got so many, we're getting back to these sort of like whole world building, you know, movies that are really stretched out over a season you know, both in budget and in like character. And, and I think it's wonderful to adapt books to TV instead of trying to cram it into a movie. Agreed. 100%. So rewarding there. But it depends on the book at the same time. <laughs> That's fair. Um, a good example of that was the first four or five seasons of Game of Thrones where essentially they did a 10 episode one hour episode each season per book mm -hmm. and even i think the second and third season was basically they, they spilled the, they kind of split up the third and fourth book or the third book was stretched out over two seasons because there's so much like the world building there's right. so many characters there's so many plot lines who's scheming with who who's cohorting with who, this other person and then you look at um oh gosh like the movie it Mm -hmm. They even split that. The remake, they split it into two parts, and they still did not cover half the material right. in that book. There's so much. That, to be fair, there's you never read the book It, um, but there's so much other crap in that book that would make no sense on the, on the screen. And so I guess I can, can kind of understand why they would edit or cut out some things. There's pacing, there's timing, and then they have to consider the audience's attention span. Right. Like, really, what the fuck y'all talking about? You know? Because like there's a the scene in the book in it where I'm gonna stick with it for a second here just to make my point where um, <laughs> just want an excuse to talk about Stephen King. Let's be honest. Who doesn't? Um, maybe maybe not you, but fair. Yeah, okay. no, I, but I'll stick through it. With Thank you. you so much. Um, there's this whole scene where you know the two of the boys, Bill and oh gosh, I forget their names now, um, Richie. They get high. And they go, and they, or I think Richie gets high, and they hallucinate, and they see when it came to Earth, and then they, and he, it came from the macroverse, which is all Stephen King lore, which mm. is rooted in a bunch of his other books, and then the antithesis to it was the Maturin, the turtle, like the god turtle or something, and that speaks to Bill and tells him how to defeat it. It's so, <laughs> like. Through the like the course of a hundred pages, they flesh that out and it makes a lot of damn sense. But like to cram it into ten minutes or less in movie exposition right. would just be oh my god, it would probably bog down everything, and people would lose their mind. And and the face you're giving me right now, right? <laughs> Put a turtle on at the last fifteen minutes of that movie, and I'd be like, Hitchhiker's Guide. What are we doing exactly. here? What's going on? Right. So going back to Ted Lasso, yeah. Ted Lasso would have been a great 90s movie. Yeah. You know, it has that feel-good, 
Mighty Ducks kind of a you know like rated R Mighty Ducks mm. you know because it has it has all like the ingredients for a feel good movie right but what this series allows it it being made into a series allows it to do is like you know what man everything's not all great right life is really shitty but like but it doesn't it doesn't mean that there's always shitty people and it doesn't mean you cannot find and grow and develop and I think that's one of the strengths of the show because there's, you know, I love, like I said, I love good horror movie. I love a good action movie. I love, you know, like guy movies and love good dramas and courtroom thrillers where it, they're all populated. Mm-hmm. Bad people, terrible people, awful characters, like good characters, but they're, they just do awful things. Ted Lasso isn't really filled with those kinds of people. Right. They're in there, um, but by contrast, there's so many interesting, great, rich characters that you like get get latched onto, and you're rooting for, and I don't know. It's just it's a breath of fresh air. Right. I think that's why it's 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 taken off as well as it has because you are rooting for all, virtually everybody in this show, with the exception of a a few a few folks. Well, you know, I think what Ted Lasso does really, really well on that note is it really sees the nuance of what it means to be a human. You know, um, I think our society in an effort to allow people to fully embrace whoever they are and to um, be better as humans, sometimes we get a little rigid or a lot rigid. We get really black and white. And I really, really, really love how Ted Lasso takes each of these characters. I'm trying to remember, what's the name of the, the, the owner, the lady owner of the club? Rebecca. Rebecca, right, right, right. You know, Rebecca, who she is in those first couple of episodes is wildly different than who she is at, even at the end of the first season. And, and, you know, where in the beginning you might see her like, oh, she's a bit of a ball buster, but she's this like strong woman. And and then at the end, you see this like wonderful, playful, sensitive woman who, who deeply loves her relationship with Keely and who, um, you know, really, really goes through it to be more in alignment with her true self. And I think so much of that is missed um in in other in other tv shows and other movies yeah that's fair like um like because as the series progresses you see why she was kind of so jaded Mm -hmm. and and just hard-nosed about everything and like you know of course folks if you're listening spoilers (laughs) i mean i'm not holding back and i should you nicole don't hold back on spoilers okay um go see Ted Lasso and then come back. Mm. Um, you know, at the very beginning, she hires Jason Sudeikis, Ted Lasso to come over and coach or train, be a, a trainer um, for uh, for Richmond, the soccer team and the Premier League soccer team and our football team. So much so much proper terminology you have to <laughs> You American. Learn. Yeah, you, have to, you have to unlearn all that American wiring and much like Ted Lasso has right. to do. 
and um, and she hires him, and she seems like on the level, and then we find out she's really plotting to just throw him under the bus, right? Make him look like a fool, and and which is is kind of telegraphed from the very beginning because who in their right mind, you know, I don't know how much you know about soccer or sports. Zero. Fair. But let's just say, let's just say they asked you to coach an NBA team because you played rugby once upon a time. <laughs> right. You right. Know? I know about as much about soccer as Ted Lasso. I have no idea what's happening in the actual games. Exactly. Yeah. And and so that would be a giant red flag to right. everybody. No wonder, right. the, no wonder the press was eating him alive. They're like, who the fuck are you, dude? Like, why are you really here? Right. And, of course, she covers for him at first, uh, um, Rebecca, the owner. But the whole time, she just really just trying to stick it sideways to her ex-husband. What's his face? Um, God, that guy sucks. Yeah, he really does. I forget his name already. He plays a great villain, though, because it's a very realistic, you know, so going s- back to narcissism. <laughs> He's got such a smug, right. punchable face. Right. You know, it's, like, it's like, you can like almost see him wearing the mask. Mm-hmm. Like, just... Like just through every interaction from like that one when it's that one episode where they're auctioning off the players to raise money, right? Even to um, Rebecca's dad's funeral, right? That was his dad, her dad that passed away. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. In season two, yeah. Um, this guy he already has a new wife and a new baby, right? And he just all these little backhanded comments he says to, to rebecca like oh man this is like but that's what i'm saying like he is one and he's like the you know he's the villain that you're supposed to hate mm-hmm. he's almost like but he's almost like the false the false villain he's really subterfuge to distract you from nate right and i think that's so that was so clever how they did that because nate's not really a bad guy either right but he's being teed up to become one. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about this. You know, so for, some, for back for background, the catch people up, Nate, when Ted Lasso and Coach Beard come to England to take over coaching of the Richmond Premier football team, Nate was like the groundskeeper. He's like the... The boot... The, 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 boot, the, the, the kit man. Yeah. Like the water boy, essentially. Right. He's the lowest man on the rung, wasn't on the team. And they fleet him up, give him an assistant coaching position, you know, allow him to breathe out his tactics and kind of allow him to kind of put some feet under him and get some respect because he was very kind of a meek kind of fellow. Mm -hmm. And I guess like, I didn't really, I guess it was so either I just missed it completely because I just wasn't paying attention, or like it was, um, I don't think they, they pulled a fast one on us. I think they just sewn it in really gradually that the series is, is slowly backing away from the inner circle mm-hmm. um, uh, between Ted Lasso, Coach Beard, um, Leslie Higgins, mm-hmm. the whole group there, they were kind of for, uh, forming up together. The Diamond Dogs. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, don't get, don't get started there. Yeah, um, <laughs> fair. And he just kind of springs up out of nowhere. And 
Mm. Uh, Nate does, and he's oh, he's so bitter. And yeah. did you see that coming? So it was really interesting because. Oh, you know, okay, just to tie back to the beginning of our discussion here, there are a lot of things that make us look like the very worst versions of ourselves, right? So Ted Lasso is a great example of um, really intense anxiety sometimes looks really selfish. You're not thinking about other people. You're thinking about, I got to save myself, right? When he runs out of that game, he's not thinking about the impact on the players to see their coach leave. He's like... I'm having a panic attack. I gotta get the hell out of here, right? Fight or flight. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, on the other end, you've got that, you know, Rebecca's ex husband. Um, and that's, you know, maybe solid narcissism. That's a man you can see he gets a little bit of pleasure from causing pain to others. Mm-hmm. So, bare minimum, emotionally immature, but it's covered with a veneer of something that looks good. With Nate, you know, they really show you, okay, Nate does not feel the love or approval of his parents, but very specifically his father. And then what's most impactful is that Ted Lasso, in his desire to be everybody's best friend, takes Nate under his wing, but in some ways only as it's convenient to him. As soon as Roy Kent comes along and he notices that Roy has the charisma, not only is he talented, and, and Nate does seem to have a real eye for the game. They make that very clear. But Roy has experience, and he's hot, and he's liked, right? And you see Ted Lasso, and I actually went back and watched it again so I could confirm, repeatedly turn away from Nate to go to Roy, to pair with Roy and then leave Nate with Beard. He repeatedly rejects Nate after showing him an abundance of love and appreciation and a validation that is love bombing. That's a thing that narcissists do. Do I think he's a narcissist? No, but I think it was particularly triggering for Nate. Mm-hmm. What I think was really fascinating that they did. And I, I'm, I'll be so curious to see how they sort of allow Nate to unfold in season three is that, you know, it starts off with him joking he says these sort of outrageous things to the players, right? There's that one scene where he's kind of boosting the players up by actually telling them how terrible they are. And because you see him as helpless and harmless, it's funny. You're like, oh man, look at Nate go. That's hilarious. The players do it, so we do it, right? That's how we interpret. But actually, if you go back and watch it, all of the things he's saying are terrible things that he just later, when you see more of his personality, because they allow us to see it, you recognize, oh, wait, hold on a second. Now, I'm okay, so when Nate finally blows his gasket yeah. and goes off on Ted Lasso, yeah. he says some pretty fucking shitty things. Like things that I think weren't warranted mm. that kind of crossed the line. He got a little personal to mm-hmm. Ted's family. Right. Um, now, I understand the heat of the moment. You're pissed. You're in your you're in your feelings, and you're looking that that person that you that res- you respected the most, who you felt disrespected you the most. Right. And you're just unloading everything. 
And I think at some point the line was crossed where it wasn't so much, hey, this is this is where I feel you fell short with me. And that, that's what hurts me. I'm going to double back, double down, and hurt you because I want you to feel what I felt. Mm. Do you think that is showcasing who Nate truly is? Or is that just maybe like a defense mechanism or an offensive mechanism to just kind of put all that back onto Ted and really kind of hammer the point home how hurt and his mind betrayed he felt? That's an interesting question. My feeling is this, you know, um, I'm an attachment, I'm an attachment therapist. And so um, what that really means is that science has shown us starting in like the 1960s or so that how our parents loved us and were consistently there for us uh, really makes a huge difference in how we show up in the world. And so we then recreate those dynamics with all other meaningful relationships with our best friends, certainly with our bosses and absolutely with our spouses. And so, you know, they make that super clear. He's saying, to Ted Lasso, you rejected me. And the meaning that he makes about it is that you're a fraud. Mm -hmm. But, you know, could I see someone in real life who's ultimately not actually a bad person saying those things? Yes, absolutely. Because the way our body stores trauma and stress and rejection from parents is the ultimate trauma and stress. Um, is that when we experience something similar to it, our body literally puts us in the nervous system state that we were at when it first happened. So if the first time that Nate felt rejected by his father was five, then in some ways, who you're seeing in the, that scene where he calls him a fraud and he's yelling and like waving his arms around or whatever is a five-year-old. I wonder if that's, you know, you bring up a good point because you can, I mean, they had many examples of how Nate's relationship with his father was super stressed right. and, and not healthy. Do you think, you know, part of, part of the words he used against Ted Lasso, he was really directing towards his father, but he just hasn't had the balls to do that yet. A hundred percent. Because, you know, because Ted Lasso is what? He's a father. Right. Right. And and he's a father figure, older brother, mentor figure for Nate. 100%. And so that and that's like a, a a lateral position to a father or to a parent. And and likewise you a child or mentee would put a lot of vulnerability and trust into the hands of that person. So it's like basically like Nate took two to the face. Right. And so, and I, I bring all that up and thank you. That's a great analysis. I bring all that up because like I was saying about Ted Lasso, having a plethora of rich characters mm. who are flawed, you know, some of them are kind of gray, like even Roy Kent. Mm, I he's love on, Roy Kent. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, Roy Kent's kind of on the gray scale. Right. Um, surely Jamie, um, Tart, do, 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 do. Jamie Tart, yeah. yeah. He is, even the reporter, crim, independent. Yes, Trent. Yeah. Trent. 
Yes. Trent Krim? Yeah, I think so. Or whatever, yeah. Um, of course, in his defense, he just, he was just doing his job. Right. You know, so a great story, like Ted Lasso, what a great story period should have, maybe not a villain, but it should have conflict because without conflict, there's nothing to be gained. There's no arc. There's no learning. There's no lesson. There's no attachment to, to the characters because it's boring. Right. There's no investment to be had because there's nothing to invest. And I wonder if you feel like this show really even needs a villain because it feels like it's not really about heroes and villains. It's more about a bunch of people who feel displaced, not confident, and they all, a lot of them are just wearing masks. Right. And almost everybody has puts on a show for everyone else. Um, Rebecca does it. Certainly Ted Lasso does it. Higgins. Um, hell. All, I think the only one who doesn't is Sam. Beard is a and unicorn. <laughs> I don't know what Beard is. <laughs> Beard, I gotta tell you, sidebar, Beard's solo episode, like the Beard show, yeah, that was fantastic. It was so out of the box, and right, but it was like it was just enough of a tangent from the arc of the arc of the show to kind of like, one gives more context to who he is, and just, just you know, what he's been through, right, and it was like a good like, like breather before they get back to the main the main gut of the show to close out the season. So I really, I really liked the episode. I liked how unconventional it was. It was a giant rat race the whole time. Right. And is he schizophrenic or was that a creative choice? Like what the hell was happening with those two sideline guys who were heckling him essentially? Right. Right. I just, everything was seemed like such a, like it almost seemed kind of like he had it all in his head. Right. You know, and was that the point you're trying to get at? Yeah. I mean, clearly those two commentators were like symbolic of his own Mm self-loathing, his own sort of like inner demons. And so, but was that actually a conscious manifestation indicating that he has severe mental illness that he's covering? Or was it just a, you know, creative decision to sort of show that because it's a TV show? I mean, yeah, he like... He gets drunk at the bar, takes guys with him to the bar to a fancy club, lies, sneaks their way in, lies about his credentials, and gets kicked out. And this meets this really sexy seamstress chick whose big boyfriend comes back, and he's wearing silly pants. A beard is that she gave him while she sews up his other pants. And then Jamie Tart's father and his two, you know, buffoon friends, like are like three on one beating his ass until the big guy comes in and tr- gives him his phone and wallet. It's like, it was almost like too perfect. Right. And, but then it doesn't end perfectly because he gets kicked off the bus and he, um, gets locked. The doorknob or whatever, the lock breaks on his door. Oh, right. And he's cutting and it starts to rain. It's like, like Jesus, like it's just a one, two punch that, you know, extravaganza. Right. And, um, but anyway, so yes, Beard yeah. is an anomaly of a character. <laughs> yeah. But but like he's so like mysterious. Right. I love that about him. He doesn't say much. Because like Ted he's like he's like the um total counter counterpoint to Ted Lasso. 
Mm. Like he's a straight man to Ted Lasso's right. comic. But and also totally not the straight man sometimes until he, like, he is until he's not. <laughs> and that's why it's so interesting and so yeah. fun to watch him do anything. Right. Because uh, like the first season he was just, he would like just heckle out bits of, you know, coaching, you know, parts here and there. He would just confer on a decision here and there. And then, or he would, his only other backstory was he was dating some chick who, and they're both into chess. Right. And, you're like, what is up with Coach Beard? You just didn't know. And then season two really kind of busted those gates down. And it was just fun for me to watch. But yeah, he's he's hard to pin down, though. Yeah. Whereas, but I wondered, maybe that is his mask, too, by being so reserved. It's not, he's not maybe it's not a mask, it's like a wall. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when it comes to going back to the, you know, do they even need a villain and, and this idea of the masks... I think it's a really wonderful, is allegory even the word I'm looking for? I'm going to go with allegory, but it could be the completely wrong word, so let's just run with it. Say it with your chest. Yeah. It's all good. Boom. Um, Of what real life actually is, because the truth is, is that the vast majority of the time when we make someone a villain, they are a villain to us in our lives right then. But they are likely a hero to someone else, even if it's only themselves. You know, we are, we are always the protagonist. We're always the hero in our own story. We're the main character. What I can really appreciate is that we really see, again, the nuance and the complexity of humanity. And even people who are good at heart, right? Like maybe Nate is good at heart. Mm-hmm. Um can go through periods where they are the worst version of themselves. And so do I think the show needs a villain? I would honestly prefer that it doesn't have a real villain because I think we as humans desperately need some models for, oh, it's okay to mess up. You know, it's okay to not be the best version of yourself sometimes. And we can always choose to start showing up differently. You know, Ted Lasso does that when he gets honest with his team about having, you know, the panic attacks, when he finally stops fighting the therapist and and lets her in. Oh, we're we're, we're going to get to that very soon. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, but going back to the panic attack part, um, when I first watched the episode where he was in the club, and I think I, I, think I t- texted you, I was like, hey, is this what a panic attack looks like? Yeah. And you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> and because it, it was so, like, it, it, it so informed me on it. so informed me. I'm going with it. That I have had panic attacks. Mm. But thankfully not in a very long time. And, you know, new environment, new lifestyle really helped me out. Um, and, you know. Lots of alcohol was not helping my cause. Amen. Uh, Lord. Um, but anyway, so it was just so interesting seeing, like, not, I saw myself on the screen. It wasn't quite like that. And, of course, I think they kind of really punched it up for the dramatic effect of the show. Um, at least in my experience, my panic attacks weren't, they didn't seem that fantastical and that that huge. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, 
how they kind of shot and edited that whole sequence is very like, whew, world's closing in on him. He, right, the tunnel vision. He couldn't breathe too well, or right. he, was, he was very heavy or shallow. And I'm like, that looks very familiar. <laughs> right. That looks like it sucks. I know what that feels like. And so I want to ask you a little bit about panic attacks. Um, you know, I feel like panic attacks can kind of come about very organically. Are people predisposed to have panic attacks or is it always the result or a byproduct of some sort of triggering traumatic event that they've encountered in their life? Yes. <laughs> um, Fair. Yeah. So, you know, this cool thing that we're figuring out now is that trauma is passed uh, through the sp- uh, through the sperm and through the egg um, to from parent to child through the T cells. Say again? Yeah. That is fucking crazy. Yeah. And so you can have, I mean, if you're looking at um, like systemic oppression, let's say, that's why you can see over the generations that the mental health actually just gets worse and worse because you have this sort of compounded effect of trauma on trauma on trauma. Is that why there's always stories of like, like, okay, her granddaddy was a maniac, so she's a maniac. And, right. and, and, and meaning that like, oh, he went crazy. So she's likely to go crazy too. Is that like that genetic transference? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the one, two punch of nature and nurture, right? Like, yeah, he was crazy. So, uh, yeah, she likely inherited some of his nervous system, uh, like a propensity for, um, high stress. Mm -hmm. I I call that riding high. Um, but also to be raised by someone who's emotionally unstable. Uh, there's something called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, uh, this huge study. And now there's been a bunch of them, uh, but found that some childhood experiences literally change how your brain develops. Huh. Yeah, it's it's fascinating in a kind of a horrible way. And thankfully, some, you know, we have the ability to heal mm-hmm. some of that. But, you know, I, I definitely think you could be predisposed based on your genetics and family history. And so let's say you saw Ted, like you, Nicole, mm-hmm. you saw Ted Lasso in real life. He's a real person. Yeah. And you saw him in that bar, that club they were in, and he was having a panic attack. What would be, like, he doesn't have to be a client of yours. He's just someone you saw. Like, it looks like you're having a panic attack. And you can see the signs, and you can maybe ask the consensual information, like, hey, are you, do you feel you're having a panic attack? How do you feel? And in knowing it was a panic attack, what is the proper response? What, what like as as for Ted Lasso, what should he have done? Is there something can he just have, does he just have to like suck it up and ride it out till it's over mm-hmm. with? Or you, that's my kind of like what I'm getting at. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that you know we can call it a panic attack or we can call it survival energy. Right. You know, had he actually been in a dangerous situation, um, it it looks like he was sort of exhibiting the freeze response. Right. Mm -hmm. He had no response. Um, Actually, let me back up and explain something really quickly. So, yeah, let me give you a little 411 on the nervous system. Right. So the way we are hardwired is that let's say I was, um, you know, walking in the forest and all of a sudden I see a bear. 
The moment that I see the bear, my entire body orients to the threat. My eyeballs literally change shape and become pointy as if to say, there's a freaking bear, right? right. Um, all of my muscles tense up to support me either running away or fighting the bear. Even my breathing changes and gets really, really shallow to support me running the hell away, right? So the survival energy that comes with seeing a threat, let's say I, I try running from the bear, mm -hmm. doesn't work. He catches me. I try fighting the bear, doesn't work. I'm overpowered. Our body does this thing where it sort of says, okay, one of two things are going to happen here. Either you can play dead and the bear is going to go away or it's going to kill you. And to prepare you for death, we're going to literally give you the gift of checking out. And that's the freeze response. And so, you know, when we have a, a ton of survival energy running, just coursing through our body, it feels huge. And we as humans are not told, we're not socialized to move this energy. We're told, sit down, breathe, be silent, meditate even. It's the exact opposite of what you actually want to do. And it will kind of throw you into a little bit of a freeze response. So, you know, if I saw Ted Lasso in real life, first of all, if he was still in the club, I would get him out because he was clearly overstimulated. You know, so in a space where your body is perceiving a threat, but there's not a threat that you can find present, then you just want to minimize all feelings of threat. Um, I would also try and get him out of his head, right? You really see him trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening to me. Sure. Right? There is no threat. You're confused about, you're probably, your body's probably confused on why it's you know, having all its extra energy. Right. And it's like, why am I doing this? Right. And, and so that, so that is brought, that is brought upon by, would you say typically brought upon by just always past trauma or is it brought upon sometimes hereditary? Um, um, yeah. For, from a hereditary uh, uh, reason. I mean, because <clears throat> it's just, it's so interesting to unpack what panic attacks or what are, they're clinically called. Right. What are they clinically clinically called? You know, the truth is, is that, you know, you can call it an anxiety attack and you can call it a panic attack. And I do believe that there is on paper a difference. I have never found that when I'm talking to someone that they gave a damn about the difference so much as really just wanted to make sure it was going to stop. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I do think an important distinction is this. When I talk to people about trauma, oftentimes... They only think of, you know, car accidents or death or assault, right? Mm -hmm. But for our animal body, because we're mammals, right? right? What constitutes trauma is a situation where we are completely out of control. We cannot save ourselves. And there's not someone there to help. Or the people that are there won't help. And if you think about that, man, that's a lot more things than, than is a car accident, right? Sure. That's social rejection. That's uh, potential for job loss. There's so many different things that could be traumatic. But because we don't have that intellectual reference, you know, Ted had an, an abundance of things happening for him, right? But because he didn't want to look at any of that and he was avoiding it, it really came out sideways in his body. So... 
I guess like he couldn't keep he couldn't keep the genie in the lamp that long, so to speak. Right. Or, Nobody can really. You know, we cover it up by things like alcohol or marijuana or shopping or gambling or sex. But like his his, his cup runneth over. Right. And I feel like, you know, having been divorced myself and having your child be a, a long distance relationship with you. Right. And worrying about having a child having your child grow up feeling like Nate does. Right. You know, that's very unsettling. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that's how it is with, with me and, and my and my daughter or anything, but it is a fear that's there. Right. And the distance is really hard. And, you know, and I'll get these really sad, um, I, call them my, I call them my black clouds. I'll get mm. these black clouds and, and it really only, it only really blossomed when I was drinking alcohol. Right. And not, and not every time, but if I had more than two drinks, oh, we were taking a, taking that walk. <laughs> and it was so scary. And I would get so bummed. And then looking at, looking back at when I had those episodes, it was like almost beat for beat, carbon copy of what panic, or of the panic attacks that Ted Lasso was having. And so I'm like, damn, that's a bit like shit that no wonder that thing sucks. It's, yeah. it's you feel like you, cause you feel threatened. And sometimes I feel like the threat that you are trying to perceive is just made up right. or, or we have invented it. Right. And maybe we are, we're inventing it because there's an underlying feeling of maybe guilt or loss of control. I don't know. That just sounds, it's so interesting how we, how those things can, those panic attacks can spring up and like, what are they trying like dreams, you know, what are they trying to tell us? Right. <laughs> I know you're a big dream person. So, you know, you're, you're all about that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, dreams are interesting, but so are panic attacks and, but it's interesting in a very scary way. Right. You know, I, I think that, Humans do this hilarious and beautiful, wonderful thing where we all assume that we are unique. We are a special version of fucked up. Rated our content. Sorry, I curse. This is a radar show. <laughs> beautiful. So, you know, and the truth is, is, oh man, my job in a given day, I may actually have the same conversation seven different times because we are... As a therapist, you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we are way more alike than we are different. But because, you know, our society, specifically in America, I'm sure it's different in other places. Um, oh, God, what was that old book? Bowling Alone, right? We're so separate from one another. Um humans to feel safe, right? Coming out of fight or flight, right? So let's say I run away from the bear. I'm going to go back and I'm going to find my people and I'm going to say, holy shit, I just escaped a bear attack. And they're going to say, oh my God, I'm so happy. So thankful you're alive. Let's right. celebrate. Let's get maybe a little drunk. Let's sing some songs about it. Let's go find that bear and eat it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that drops us into a place called the ventral vagal system. It's our social engagement system. So we are hardwired to feel safe through connection with other people. 
And anytime... Makes sense. Yeah. Anytime that that connection gets interrupted or we are so filled with shame that we don't feel like we can, or in the past we've tried to reach out to people we thought were safe and they ended up not being safe, Mm -hmm. right? All of that is is in in our brain. It hits the oldest part of our brain, our lizard brain. Right, yeah. Our vagus go. nerve. Um, and our body interprets that as a, a a mortal threat. So, you know, I think especially if you add an alcohol to the mix, right? Alcohol is a literal depressant. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Quite. Um, you know, and especially if, let's say, you're drinking by yourself. I mean, then you're acutely aware of the isolation. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I uh so yeah, I just I just thought that whole that that narrative in and plot point where Ted Lasso you could finally see the cracks right. in his facade of and it's not a whole facade because I buy into, you know, I, I believe in Ted Lasso, you know. Much right. like how uh Trent Krim from the Independent started to believe in him because he is authentic. Right. He is the real McCoy. He does believe in his player. He does believe in himself. And he, you know, he believes in the goodness of people. And I think those idioms and all his jargon, I don't think that's an accident. I think he knows very well what he's doing. Um, and that's not in a um, um, malicious mm-hmm. way. It's He became an overnight soccer coach, but he spent decades becoming a a. a coach of people right um and but you know he is but human all the same and i just think that makes for a much more interesting show because his pain because like you want to root for him but his pain is very universal Mm. he becomes very easy to root for because he doesn't really um you know, even though he did make Nate feel those those things and kind of cast Nate aside once um, Roy was in the was in the fold, you can you knew that Ted Lasso wasn't being malicious, right? Or wasn't purposefully, you know, saying "fuck you" to Nate. Um, I don't think he's really gone off on anyone. I don't. He was he was about to go off on Jamie at one point, but he got inter- interrupted. That's when his son and ex-wife had visited yeah you know he does go off on nate one time when he's drunk in the hotel yes or something like that's that. true yeah yeah that was that, but again like that's of course at that at that exact point in time uh, um ted lasso was in a very dark dark right. place like right. it was just like the wrong time wrong place just nate just rolled he did not roll the good, good or he's not uh get dealt a good hand um and trying to talk to him at that point where, yeah, he basically ripped his head off. And, and I was like, damn, Ted, like, it's little Nate, man. You know, be go easy. Right. You know, he looked kind of bad. Um, but even then, he, he circled back. Ted Lasso did. And he apologized. And, you know. But my point is, Ted Lasso's earnest. And in so many shows and movies where people are conniving, backstabbing, plotting, it's good to see a character with integrity. And I think, and, and I said all that to say this, that I think that's why Ted Lasso has been come, has become such an, an enjoyable, rewatchable 
show because you are, you are so invested in rooting for him and and by extension the people that come in contact with him because you know even like the Roy Kents and the Jamie uh, Jamie um, what's that fucking dude's last name Tart Tart <laughs> the Roy Kents and the Jamie Tarts and even you know the rest of the players that are put off by his American charms they eventually come around and I'm not saying they, they fall for it or anything but they kind of just see like okay he's not so bad yes we're a stinky team still and but like it was an unfair expectation to <clears throat> assume that Ted would go in and fix a average team overnight or over one season especially given where he was coming from with no knowledge of, of football Football was life. <laughs> love, love that guy. Um, no knowledge of the game or the sport against a team, a press uh, group, and fan base that wanted him anywhere but there. Right. Um, he like he, he he had himself and beard in his corner. Yeah. And he still like. He still like gutted it out. He still like st- stuck to his guns, and that could have been very well motivated by his need to kind of separate um, for when he left behind that relationship he had with his ex-wife. Or you know, I guess we need more Ted Lassos. One of my favorite things about the whole show is that I think it displays the most beautiful, healthy masculinity that we just we just don't get to see enough of. And, and I say that as a woman, of course, but you know, when I have, you know, guy clients and I have many guy clients, you know, as they sort of wake up to all the programming that they're told about what it means to be a man and what kind of emotions they're allowed to have and what kind of relationships with other men they're allowed to have. Um, it's, it's so toxic on screen in so many spaces. And I just love that Ted Lasso has, you know, there's the scene where uh, Jamie Tart punches his dad and Roy Kent walks right up to him and just puts him in a bear hug. And you see for a moment that Jamie is like shocked. Mm -hmm. Like there's just this moment of uh, almost like surreal um, on his face. And then he just breaks down and really is in this hug. And so I think so many characters in this show are men that have real emotions. And instead of channeling them into, I say that American society allows men to have three emotions. They're allowed to be angry, sleepy, or horny. That's it. Um, you know. That's fair. I, I hate it. It's my soapbox there. Um, we get to see so much more authenticity. And I, I think it's a, just a wonderful model. And we're so ready for that model. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, what is your recommendation on Ted Lasso? In as few words as possible, what do you think your answer would be? Well, I'll tell you, as soon as I started watching it, I started recommending it to my clients. So I have had this conversation several times now. Uh, I think I usually lead with it is heartwarming. It is fun. The characters are interesting and nuanced. 
It goes where you don't always expect it to go. Shout out, Coach Beard. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think we very rarely see secure attachment with people. Real relationships that are safe, where people show up for one another. And no, it's not all relationships in that show, Mm -hmm. but there are so many relationships that have that. And I love for people to see that so they know it's possible. That's a great answer. I, um, well, thank you. Well, you're welcome. I, uh, like a critique of the show that I have, um, is that it's about soccer, (laughs) but there's so little soccer or football in it. Um, it, I mean, it's in there or, but it's most, it's more often talked about than shown. Right. And, and so that was a, a critique I had on my first pass. And then I thought about it and I'm like, well, it's not really about football. Right. Football is life. Football is life. Um, but Ted Lasso is, is not just football or soccer Ted Lasso is the show that is not the character right Ted Lasso is is it uses football and or soccer as a backdrop it's very much like Shaun the Dead you've seen Shaun the Dead right yeah how Shaun of the Dead was mainly like zombies were like 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 the MacGuffin mm-hmm. pushes the plot um or really the the backdrop of the whole plot it was really about Sean finding himself and finding responsibility. Mm. Here it's about Ted Lasso. And it's kind of weird. Like, what is the motivation for Ted Lasso like, of the character, would you say? Like, what is his goal? Is his goal to escape? Or is his goal to, is his goal to plant himself in this new place permanently or semi-permanently and rediscover himself you think is it to you know is it to be this shiny new light in a very dim dark group or neighborhood of london because he affects everybody he affects the the patients in the bar his neighbors you know the schools certainly the football team you know and it's like i I feel like there's a question that doesn't really need an answer. Or maybe the answer hasn't come yet. And we're still kind of figuring out, like Ted is, figuring out kind of what his new purpose is. Right. Because he's hired to be a coach, but is that his purpose? My feeling is that, you know, just like in real life, you know, there's there's what we have awareness of, and then there's the unconscious motivators and desires that are typically driven by patterns, right? And so, you know, I think in that first season, if you asked Ted, he would say, oh, I'm looking for a new adventure or, you know, because in that first season, it was like, he just had to stay ahead of his real life. When I think he couldn't do that anymore, his life caught up with him. He saw his wife and recognized, oh, I've been living in a fantasy. I have to give her up. Then there was this really messy transition period. So my feeling is that the third season, you'll see him sort of reestablish a real why. 
that's not based in just staying, you know, one to two steps ahead of the chaos that's inside. Do you think maybe he was trying to outrun it? For by, sure. By keeping himself busy and, I mean, like, it's kind of, they kind of telegraphed that too. He spent so much time um, with that American football, college football team. They got all the way to the big game and won. Right. That takes a lot of time, a lot of commitment. And not saying he's had to be there all the time to be a great coach, but that kind of shows his commitment to his job. And sometimes that's a pattern of being a workaholic. Sometimes. I don't think that's why he got divorced. I'm not saying that it is either, but I'm saying that's that could be a good product because he, he put so much time into his work. Right. That maybe quite possibly in the in the span and the scope of trying to turn a program a, a program around a sports program around there are some um consequences mm. and some things are left behind right temporarily or not those side effects are still, those effects are still there that could be a nitpick it could be reading too much into it but it feels like that that's kind of important it's kind of, it's kind of a showing what kind of character he has right he is dedicated. He does. He's a professional. He wants to win. He is a winner. But damn, man, like, right. he, he can't win at everything. Well, and I, I think, you know, so much of that is connected to the fact that it's not until the very, really, the end of of the second season where you see him actually get real and show any vulnerability. You know his. Yeah wife says to i think it was to beard um somebody says like oh is he like this all the time and she was like all the time it was something to the effect of i got the feeling in the moment of oh she didn't really see him either and Mm. that emotional misattunement will end a marriage it just will so well actually to clarify when you say, you know, that there was a, there's an impact, you know, his dedication, were you talking about in hindsight or in this, where he is now, that his current dedication will have an impact? So what my point with that was, I was, I was saying that that, that could have been impact, because um, the whole um, opening segment of him, you know, being hired to go coach overseas was because, or maybe not because, but, you know, his accolade was that he had took a college football program all the way to a championship in the span of a year, which is, which in any sports program that is almost impossible to do, especially if they're, if they have an average or floundering record. So what that tells me as a sports fan is that he put everything he had into that program and good on him because it paid off. But my, my point with that also is, uh, you know, I don't know how no matter how understanding your family is, your spouse, partner, children, at some point that much dedication, which definitely in and for that context of that accomplishment, as great as it is, there's consequences to devoting so much time and energy into that. And Absolutely. Not, and not reserving any for anyone else. Right. And that is that an assumption I'm making? Yes. But Knowing, again, how much work he had to have put in, fiction or not, to turn a whole franchise around 
positively and take them all the way to a, sh- a championship game in one season, it, it's, it is a sub of fiction because it, it's almost impossible to do right. without a lot of hard work and time committed to it. So maybe he, there's already something in his marriage or in his relationship that he's also kind of stepping away from or pulling, running away from and putting energy into his work right. to make up for it. Maybe. That's my feeling about it. You know, I think what we see from Ted Lasso is that he has developed this, I mean, very in-depth identity. You know, he he is Ted Lasso, like, with, with jazz hands, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and they show that in so many just different ways of him, like, saying hi to people. In some ways, he is a character even if he was real, right? People develop these identities sometimes as a protective mechanism because what's underneath is someone small and scared. It's a younger version of themselves. You know, when you find out that he was the one that discovered his dad, you know, had killed himself, you see in his face a younger version of him come out. And that version doesn't have the charisma and the sense of humor and the power it's tender it's young it's maybe you might use the word weak that's not what i mean but that's what it looks like right and exposed exposed beautiful word and so you know i think the character of ted lasso even if he was a real person that persona that he developed protected him from feeling the feels And ultimately, I think, you know, it's probably what ruined his marriage. I think we'll probably find out a little bit more about that. I hope we do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also kind of messed with his relationship with Nate. You know, it makes people suspect at first. I think it is a real version of him, but it's a persona of him. Yeah, I think that's, I think Nate saw just that one side of it. And that's probably what triggered him calling Ted a fraud. Right, right. I don't think Ted's a fraud. No, me neither. Um, again, like I stand by my point, I think that was really him speaking to his dad through Ted Lasso. Right. Um, but also to a part of that, he was directly speaking to Ted as well. So I'm so glad you mentioned that, uh, that story uh, about how Ted kind of, he unpacked dealing with his father's suicide how he kind of checked out and left Ted stranded. Um, I don't want to get to all of that. That's a that's a that's a whole other episode, right? <laughs> but going into like the therapist, the doctor. Um. How how, as a therapist, how do you approach clients or people? Maybe they're not clients yet because maybe they feel like Ted or or Rick. Um, how do you approach people or how do you respond to people that have that reserved off-putting uh, um, protection or shield against therapy or what therapy could, can do for them? You know, I think that there are a number of people that have legitimately been harmed by therapists. Um you know, fortunately or unfortunately enough, the idea of a wounded healer is certainly true. Most of us go into the field to understand why we are so uniquely fucked up. 
<laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, hey, I regularly hear stories from people just kind of like Ted says, you know, he felt like his couples therapist really didn't have his side. And maybe that's not true because that's certainly a thing that people think in couples therapy sometimes, mm -hmm. but it is definitely possible. You know, therapists are humans too, and we have our own biases. And if we're not unpacking our own baggage, mm -hmm. we will absolutely put it onto our clients. And so I really honor when people are skeptical um, and distrusting. The vast majority of the time, my experience is that people believe that it can't work for them or they're honestly not running from therapy. They're running from the idea of, what do you mean I have to sit in, a, sit in all of my crap for you know 50 minutes every week? Like that sounds terrible. I absolutely don't want to do that because it's uncomfortable. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. You know? You feel like she handle, handled herself professionally and accordingly with, because Ted kind of, came after her pretty hard the first right. two two or three sessions like but like it was almost like she was kind of saying the time like okay he'll be back in three two one you know yeah it was like a day later or whatever it was but she kind of predicted and kind of like kind of read ted um but and that was kind of like that was like the the funny part of it because like oh he's just acting out because he doesn't want to go to therapy like ha 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 i can relate to that whatever but when it got really down to the brass tacks of it, he was really like, no, like, fuck you. Like, I don't want to do this. You charge me. Right. And then to tell you what I already know. Or, or you know, and, and, like, do you feel like her response or how, um, or what, like, she had a good response or mm, is yeah. there is there a good, a good response for a therapist to, to you know, cause especially when you're dealing with a big personality like Ted Lasso. Right. And like, like no pun intended, he's hard to lasso in because he's he's so. Is it gregarious? Yeah, he covers up a lot by having a really big personality. Exactly. I actually, in the moment, really appreciated her response. Mm -hmm. um, it's within therapist communities. It's actually really common to see people actually really struggle to charge what they need to charge to you know live indoors and pay off student loans, right? Um, because there's this belief of, oh, if I'm a healer, that's something I'm called to do. I shouldn't be making money off of it. Um, it, it it's a really hard thing to kind of get right with yourself of I'm allowed to do something that I love. I'm allowed to help people and I don't have to be poor. <laughs> right. But, but people are very skeptical of it. Which is weird because, you know, she asks him, like, would you coach for free? Are you coaching for free? Right. You know, why is that the expectation that, oh, if a therapist is taking money from me, there must not be genuine affection. When I think they're actually, honestly, in my personal opinion, is that unconditional positive regard is the single biggest change agent in a therapeutic relationship. My clients know I deeply care about them, you know, and my boundary will sometimes be flexible contingent upon, you know, what is really needed in that moment. Last week I had actually two clients who had parents pass. And what I said to them was, Hey, you've got my number, reach out, 
the shit hits the fan, you know where I'm at. Mm-hmm. You know, because that is the healing thing, not some like sudden insight that occurs on a random Thursday session. Sure. That's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, our there's a, there's a, uh, much like being a coach, you know, you're, you're driven by your passion to do what you want to do. And I don't, I think it's very important that your passion shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be free. It's like, it's like that line from the dark Knight, the Joker is like, if you're good at something, never do it for free. (laughs) And I'm not saying everyone who's passionate about something is going to be necessarily good at that something. Right. But like, or also late stage capitalism, it's fine. <laughs> fair. But the aspect, or I guess the, assume, the assumption is that if you're passionate about it, you're going to work really hard at it. Right. Get to a place where you should be paid for it and therefore you're paid for it. And therefore right. that's your, and there, that is your career and that is your legacy. Right. And, um, and it ties back to, um, being coach Ted Lasso, like, you know, he's doing what he loves to do. Um, is it to the detri- detriment of his personal life? Or does his personal life, was it not even good in the first place and he needed to kind of cut it off? Cut off what, not his relationship with his son, but his ex-partner. Right. Because something better was waiting for him. He just didn't realize. Or he needed to find himself first which is probably what the real answer is because you know i feel like it's, it's safe to say if a person is still having lots of panic attacks and still running away from their own truth they might not make the best partner oh no not, you know, not especially i'm just throwing that out there yeah casually see that lands anywhere <laughs> sticks the little wall kind of yeah. so if i can't be real with myself i'm not going to be real with you so i think that's that's you know you know it's he has that passion to kind of keep him kind of moving because mm-hmm. if he sits still you know you know he should sit still right to, like, right you should right. to kind of get through some of these feelings but he should. It's good that he has this passion, this charge, this, this calling to do what he does. And and gosh darn, he's so good at it. He is. You know, it's he's just so. Even when they lose, I'm like, yeah, they still kind of won. My heart. Right. You know, it's, eh, it's good. It's fun. Right. Um. Okay. Well, we've been at it for a while. We've. Uh, I really wanted to thank you for coming on and just. You know, I feel like. You know, Ted Lasso, like to talk about Ted Lasso, the talk about Ted Lasso with a therapist is going to sound very differently if I sat down with like a soccer fan. Right. Or a soccer player or just even a person who doesn't have, who doesn't really think in the context of healing and therapy and can unpack so much of what's baked into Ted Lasso like you could. Not that that would have been a fun conversation with anyone else. But you being here to talk about Ted Lasso really helps bring out what may, many, maybe many of us didn't realize we were enjoying so much about it. Mm, thank you. And um, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything um, you don't want to plug, you want to get out there, let the people know 
getting into? Sure. Um, if you are in the state of Georgia, um, I am a working therapist in Georgia. My website is soulsciencehealing.com. And on my website, you can find out how to get in touch with me. You can uh, sign up for therapy or actually coaching. Fancy that. Um, that. Yeah, and I just released a program that I collaborated with one of my good friends, a crazy powerful woman named Margaret Mason Tate. And uh, we are actually, I think in a few days, releasing a Tough Love Intentional Living Challenge um, that's guided by me on some of the principles that I have found that make happy humans. Great. And that comes out when? I think... I think December 5th. It's coming up real soon. Oh, that's like in two weeks. Yeah. What is time anyway? What but... is time? <laughs> last... You can do it whenever you want. It's a the challenge. The last two years, time has been a construct of fabrication. We don't... Right. <laughs> right. I call it a snow globe. So, yeah. You know, if you're looking to do a little extra work, maybe you have a therapist you really love, or maybe you don't even really want to work with a therapist. You want to do it on your own. A little tough love, intentional living could be a great option too. So, Or you could just reach out and say hi. Great. Say, I disagree. I love <laughs> that character. Whatever it is. Happy to talk. Yeah. I know. We Thank you so much. I, I God, There's so much more I, I, I feel like we could talk about Ted Lasso uh, for, but, you know, some things are better left unsaid also. I'll see you next season then. <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay. Thank you so much, Nicole, for stopping by. And, thanks for and having guys, me. You're welcome. And, guys, um, thanks for listening. Um, please go check out soulsciencehealing.com. Healing. And go to therapy. <laughs> Amen. Go to therapy. Therapy's cool. Therapy is cool. Therapy is scary. Um, I, when I first started therapy, I was, oh, Jesus. I did not want to be there. <laughs> and the irony <laughs> is that I signed myself up to go. Yeah. My, of my own volition, I like, I need to go to therapy. And I got to therapy. I'm like, fuck this. I want to leave immediately. <laughs> but I stuck with it, and I'm so glad that I did. So... One last question for you. Do you feel everyone should go to therapy? I think everyone can benefit from getting a little extra help and examining the patterns that they don't even know they have. And I think that therapy can be an accessible and judgment-free place to get that. Well said. This whole episode has just been a bunch of well-said things by Nicole. <laughs> Nicole you. Rubin, everyone. Bam, bam. Um, SoulSilenceHealing.com. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get to it. Let's, let's, I can't wait for your stuff to come out. Go check out our website, folks. Thanks for listening. And as always, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.